0: And welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute, filling in as chair for another week. Remember Brexit? All those late-night meaningful votes, all those ministerial resignations, all those bust-ups with the EU. We're not meant to use the B-word anymore, at least the government would prefer us not to. Because after Boris Johnson won the 2019 general election with the slogan to get Brexit done, the government would like us to think that, well, it got Brexit done. But it hasn't. Not yet. Not yet. And with the UK scheduled to leave the transition period on December 31st this year, there's still an awful lot to do. So, to look ahead, we're going to talk today about the final few months of Brexit negotiations with the EU, we're going to think about the Brexit bill still to be voted on in Westminster and to we'll discuss what will actually change for all our lives this year. And to discuss all this, I've brought together the IFG's all-star Brexit team of Maddie Timon-Jack, Georgina Wright and Joe Marshall. Hi, everyone. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Let's begin with the state of the Brexit talks. The UK and the EU are still thrashing out the terms of their future relationships. But progress, if you believe the briefings and statements from Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, and David Frost, his UK counterpart, is slow, or even stalled. Georgie, is it as
1: bad as we're hearing? I'd say yes and no. I mean for starters only those really at the heart of the Brexit negotiations know what is really going on. And I mean if you consider how long trade negotiations usually last so anything between sort of 6 months to 6 years we are sort of exactly where we should be. The problem here of course is is twofold. A it's a very complex negotiation. It's a you know it's about a lot more than just trade. And it's the first time that we're seeing a negotiation where we're going to increase barriers to trade at the end of it rather than reduce them. So there are lots of sticking points. But of course, um, I think two really stand out. and um, One is, of course, the level playing field. Basically, this, this you know view that we shouldn't, well, the EU wants to make sure that British businesses don't gain an unfair competitive advantage over EU businesses when they access the EU market. And of course, fisheries. So issues around quotas and um, access
0: to British waters for EU vessels. And is there room for compromise, do you think? Are we actually going to end up with a deal? I mean, I always say when there is a will, there is a way. You know,
1: we have seen reports over the past couple of weeks, that actually, both sides have dropped some of their demands. And Michel Barnier has suggested that the EU is actually ready to consider uh, UK proposals, particularly on that sticking point of level playing field. But the key question, I think, is always with Brexit is, do we have enough time?
0: And you wrote sort of a very good paper about this a little while ago, setting out all the different possible ways... We could get more time if we needed it is are any of those still possible?
1: I mean, possibly, but none of the parties have said so publicly. What is absolutely clear is that, of course, the challenge with Brexit was never just about reaching a deal. It was also about allowing time to debate and vote on that deal. And, of course, allowing businesses in particular to prepare for any new deal. So I think if you consider adaptation, all these new barriers, government's going to need to be ready, businesses are going to need to be ready. And, you know, this amidst the global pandemic, there's a real question is, will, will they have time?
0: And do you see the UK government asking for more time or trying to get more time?
1: At the moment, no. I think the government's position has been very clear that they you know, didn't want to extend the transition period in the first place. That meant that they wanted all of this to be done and dusted by the end of the year, so that they could start on a new ambitious domestic agenda, but also global agenda. When the pressure piles on, and if businesses do continue to say that they would really struggle to be ready, this question of, of more time might surface again. But at the moment, it doesn't look likely.
0: So if we stick to the original timetable, What's the last possible moment that a deal can be struck and then all get put into place in time to leave at the end of the year?
1: I think the pressure really on time is more on the EU side, actually. Michelle Barnier has um, suggested October. I think possibly they could push back to a bit later. I mean, you know, if you if you think the talks uh, break down, because they just might break down, both sides might want two weeks to gather their spirits um, before returning to the negotiating table. Again, that pushes back. I think that October deadline. I think the real deadline here is obviously the thirty first of December, because we know that that's when uh, the transition period ends. But the other one to look out for is the last uh, European Parliament. Parliament sitting. So that's in the week of the 14th of December. Now the European Parliament could be recalled for an extraordinary sitting, but no one really wants that at Christmas time. So I think realistically, we would be looking at sort of late October, mid-November to finalise the deal and then giving a month, particularly for the European Parliament, to debate it, scrutinise it and vote on it.
0: Thanks, Georgie. Let's step out of the corridors and meeting rooms of Brussels and get back into the world outside. Maddie, what's actually going to change for UK citizens on the 1st of January?
2: Well, put simply quite a lot. I mean, there's a sort of... a separate question about what's going to change for those who own businesses and run businesses and I think that we're going to get into that a little bit later but for sort of those of us who are looking just to to travel to the EU um, from from the beginning of next year there are a few things we're going to have to bear in mind so first is that we need to have six months on our passports and that's sort of the rule for a lot of other countries outside the EU but when we were part an EU member state we sort of could we could travel with not much time at all on our passports and still be able to go to those countries we want to if we want to take our pets abroad we also need our the EU pet passport will no longer be valid so we'll we'll need to get a new pet passports and that will then depend, sort of the steps involved in that will depend on whether or not the EU chooses to list us um, as, as a sort of listed third country. And, and I mean, that sort of comes down to the politics of it. If we leave without a deal, I think the EU will be less willing to, to sort of make our lives a bit more easily. Whereas if we do have a deal, it's probably more likely to happen. But if we're not listed, then you need to basically start getting your pet, their passport now because they need to have their blood samples sent off and you'll, you'll need certificates from the vets of 10 days before you travel. So it's a lot more difficult. I think the other final thing thing i'd say in terms of just traveling we're used to being able to take our european health insurance card when we go away and we know that we can get treated in, in other eu countries that will no longer be valid so you'll need to think a bit more carefully about what sort of insurance you'll need what sort of health and travel insurance you'll need when you go to eu member states and it will be more difficult for those who have sort of long-term medical um health conditions and um, because it often is just more expensive getting travel insurance um, in, in those scenarios. So it will be basically a bit more difficult to travel to the EU. And then, you know, if we want to move to work in the EU, well, then you're going to be looking at the immigration regimes of each member state and have to comply with those visa requirements.
0: And you've written for us this week about the government's communications campaign that it's put together to try and get the country ready for what's coming next. Remind me again what the slogan is? Yeah. So the government's
2: gone with the slogan, check, change, go. Now, I'd be really interested to hear how many of our listeners have actually spotted any of these adverts and are aware that it's actually about getting ready for the end of the year. I know from a sort of a bit of a straw poll amongst colleagues in in the office or in our virtual office and also friends and family, a lot of people either had had seen the adverts and didn't know what they referred to or just hadn't seen them at all. So this is the the big problem at the moment for communicating what, what is going to change is the fact that, as you mentioned already, Hannah, the government doesn't want to use the b-word it doesn't want to say Brexit because the government wants us to think it's it's done but actually if you really want people to get ready for the changes coming at the end of the year they're going to need to be aware that change is happening and rather than sort of saying look let's get ready for these sunlit uplands and these new opportunities outside the EU what they really need to be telling us is it's going to be more difficult to work and to travel and to sort of trade with the EU from the end of the year and as a result we really need to get ready I mean at the moment the government just isn't doing that and I we're going to have to wait and see whether in the autumn, as the crunch point really come, draws sort of closer, whether the government will be willing, I think particularly ministers, I'd say, will be willing to actually revisit that communications campaign and try and impress on all of us, really, just the sort of level of red tape that's coming down the path.
0: Maybe the fact that people are travelling less because of coronavirus will uh, cut the government some slack over there. Joe, what about businesses? Are they prepared? They've been getting prepared and then march, being marched back down the hill again a few times so far, What? where are they at now?
3: I mean, I think in short, no, they're not prepared. Um, I think when we spoke to various business groups earlier in summer as part of, one of our recent reports, we heard that they were not prepared for the end of the year. And we've seen recent polling from the end of July from the Confederation of British Industry that found that you know 58% of their members were no better prepared Uh, in July than they were in January, and a fifth of their members' preparations have actually gone backwards and got worse over that time. And I I think, you know, taking into account the coronavirus crisis, it's no surprise, really. Businesses are are cash-strapped. A lot of money has been faced... They've had to put a lot of money into just staying afloat, and they've had to divert resources that they might have spent on Brexit in terms of people and in terms of cash uh, into their coronavirus response and just staying afloat. Um, and that has you know, been a real challenge for businesses. They just haven't had the headspace to think about Brexit. We are hearing that that is starting to change. You know, Businesses are starting to pivot towards Brexit a little bit more. Um, but you know, they are still facing big challenges. And I think they've also been faced with this difficulty that it's been quite unclear exactly what they need to prepare for.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, you know, for businesses, do they... Does it make a big difference whether there is a deal or there isn't? What are they actually preparing for?
3: Yeah, I think you know, that is one of the big uncertainties is what they are preparing for. Um, you know, I think it's on a sort of the difference between a deal and no deal. It's worth saying from the outset that under this current government and its sort of ambition for a Canada-style free trade agreement, there is less difference between a deal and no deal outcome than there would have been under Theresa May, who envisaged a much closer relationship. Um, And basically, you know, to that extent, uh, a deal basically would, a deal and no deal would both see the UK leaving the single market and customs union and will both involve a lot of additional friction in trade. What a deal might do, though, is sort of reduce that friction compared to a no deal and make the changes slightly less stark. So we know there are going to be customs checks at the border because both sides will have different regimes. But a deal might allow you to streamline some of those checks so they don't take quite as long or they cost less. For instance, another area as well is that, you know, in areas like services, um, if we don't get a deal, you might fall back on relying on lots of different rules across different member states. Depending on where you want to do business, depending on where you want to establish yourself, or on whether or not your professional qualifications are recognised, for instance, and uh, you know if we get a deal, there might be a little bit more unity around that. Uh, although it's unlikely a deal is going to add much there. So whilst there might not be a huge difference, there are some like big ticket items where a deal and no deal do make a big difference. And I think the biggest one is tariffs. So tariffs are taxes on. Uh, trade in goods when they cross the border. And in a deal scenario, both sides basically want goods to be eligible for zero tariffs, although there will be new procedural requirements that firms have to do to check and prove that their goods are eligible for those tariffs. So it won't be problem free. But if tariffs apply in a no-deal, that could be a real problem for some sectors in particular. So motor manufacturing, for instance, could face 10% tariffs on cars they export to the EU that uh, and also additional costs on their supply chain as well because those supply chains are embedded in the EU. Sheep farmers too export a lot of their product to the EU, and on some cuts of lamb there are tariffs of up to ninety percent. So they will be you know big big challenges for certain businesses could make their operations unsustainable in their current form. So I, you know, I think there's a big difference between deal and no deal. And the only other thing I would say on deal and no deal is not only does it matter in terms of what the outcome is, what it looks like, and what firms need to do to prepare, but it will also set the tone for the future relationship between the UK and the EU. Because in all scenarios, that relationship is going to evolve over time, there are going to be further discussions on things which aren't settled at the moment. And if we end with no deal, that will make those discussions just that bit harder.
0: That's what I was going to ask you, Maddy. I mean, We talk about a deal as though it's a sort of end point and there's a sort of finality to it. But presumably, given the number of different issues that are on the table, it's not going to be possible to have an all-encompassing deal, even if we we do reach some kind of deal by Christmas. So what will the process look like after that if if we've still got sort of other issues to be sorted out? And how will we sort of make people aware of different changes as different agreements are reached?
2: Well, I think that that's actually a very big question. And, and I think a lot of it is still quite unclear, to be honest. I mean, as, as Joe set out, there are some basic, asks that, sort of basic um, asks that both sides want to agree by the end of the year. So particularly sort of questions around trade in goods. But if we take services as a good example, where the UK wants a sort of blanket recognition of the professional qualifications sort of between the two sides so that people can continue to have their qualifications recognised after the end of the year. Um, you know, if, if the UK got that, then that would at least sort of give some some guarantees for for people but but the eu is at the moment completely ruled that out and and they've never agreed anything like that before you know they've said basically they want a framework which will will set a a pathway to to recognizing the qualifications of eu or uk citizens um, on the other side Um, and and if you do that well then well then it, it sort of leaves quite a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people where they sort of won't know whether at some point in the future their qualifications will be recognised. Instead, they're likely to look to requalify within an EU member state. And, and we know that um, some lawyers, for example, have already done that within Ireland. So so there's still like a huge amount of uncertainty. And I think the other, other sort of interesting question is for those issues that haven't been resolved by the end of the year, what are the UK and the EU going to do? Are they just going to allow the sort of cooperation in those areas to fall away? Or are they going to tr- decide unilaterally to take some steps to allow things to sort of continue as they are now while they wait to iron out the finer details so that's sort of another way that in, to an extent you're getting some kind of it's not an implementation period but you're still providing a bit more time to negotiate um, and it's not quite clear whether the two sides will be willing to do that I think that's something that we just haven't had enough from the UK government or the EU about actually what they're going to do in in some of those areas where where they're not going to reach agreement and I mean it's also where saying that even where they do reach agreement, things are going to change over time. Um, and, and they are still going to have to be working very closely together to, to keep both sort of each side abreast of the changes that they make. So, so I'd say at the moment, it's quite difficult to explain, to, to sort of see quite how that will unfold. Um and And again, I think coming back to what Joe said, a lot will depend on sort of the political end state by the end of the year. You know, is it are sort of both sides they've reached agreement on the things that they really wanted to prioritize so they're willing to continue to talk um beyond the end of the year sort of in a in a sort of constructive way or are we are we looking at no deal in which case you're when you do come back to the table to try and negotiate on some of those issues you're actually starting from a sort of quite negative um negative point and i mean i'd be quite interested actually to hear what georgie thinks in terms of how she thinks the eu might approach this
1: yeah, um, I mean, I, I was just listening to you, Maddie, and I think there's there's an important thing as well that's often missed. Actually, in the Brexit debate, is that you know, from the EU's perspective, yes, they wanted they wanted they always wanted a comprehensive deal with with the UK, but the government said that it wanted a loose arrangement. But also, they were always very clear that they weren't prepared to offer drastically more than they have offered their other trading partners. Um, and that's because they've got to think, well, you know, if you're South Korea and you see that actually the UK can continue to, you know, trade data will exchange data quite easily, well, then South Korea might demand the same and Japan might start to ask the same. So it really is that balance. And then second thing is, particularly if you look at services, there are very few international agreements that the UK and the EU can fall back on. And that's because you know, services are notoriously difficult to include in any trade agreement. And this isn't just something that's specific to the UK and the EU. So if you think of no deal um, scenario and coming back to the negotiating table, um, of course, you know, it would take a lot to rebuild that trust. It would certainly not be, let's pick up, you know, where we left off. I think that that would be all done. And for the EU, it means a new mandate from member states. And some member states might say, do you know what? we're done. We don't want a comprehensive deal either. And they might look at something completely different. But that would make sort of, you know, any preferential access in certain areas a lot harder to achieve. But again, this is all hypothetical, because I think both sides have said that they are committed to reaching a deal. And that's definitely where they are, where their thinking is right now.
0: And Joe, just in terms of the preparedness of government, we heard a lot of civil servants who had been working away on on sort of precautions and, and preparedness in. in in case there was a no deal, were then moved on to coronavirus when the pandemic sort of hit. Um, You know, the rest of us have been really distracted by coronavirus. How do you think coronavirus has affected the, the preparations within government?
3: I mean, I think it undoubtedly has affected preparations in government. Um, I and mean, we know that staff have been moved, as you were saying, Hannah, uh, you know, at one point in June, half of the Department for Transport staff were working on COVID in some form or other. We also know that people who were working on Brexit in the Cabinet Office, in HMRC, who are sort of pivotal to the new border arrangements and customs processes, also moved on to COVID and dealing with the sort of COVID support schemes. So we know that there has been that sort of, I suppose, brain drain from Brexit onto COVID. Um, that has started to be reversed. People are starting to come back into their roles. But it does mean that there are a few months where the right people weren't there and necessarily. And uh, when we spoke to business groups, you know, some of them said in some areas, you know, it was hard to get through to the people they needed to to talk about Brexit. Um, I think, you know, the government as well, uh, beyond a sort of a practical level, um, you know, it's also found it difficult to engage with businesses and talk to them. Uh, so the government was due to consult on certain big bits of its sort of Brexit preparations, things like how the GB border would work. Um, and it had to delay that by several months. And those months really matter when there's so much to do to prepare. And you know, taking that into account, the government's had to take some steps uh, unilaterally to mitigate the lost time, basically. So at the border, for instance, it's going to phase in new checks over a six-month period, because it's had to recognise that both businesses haven't been able to get ready because of the coronavirus crisis. But also, uh, you know, being realistic, the government hasn't been able to put in place the new systems it needs to, but people haven't been there to you know, build the new IT systems, for instance. Um, and I think the final thing that has affected government Preparations uh, because of coronavirus is this sort of challenge of communicating both coronavirus and preparations for Brexit simultaneously. And that's going to continue to be an issue for government. But, you know, if you want people to be prepared for Brexit, if you want to drive readiness from particularly those areas of, of the business community, like small businesses that are less prepared, you need a clear message that cuts through and you need ministers to be out there making the case and you know, sort of explaining what happens if you're not ready and the consequences of not being prepared, but doing that alongside the coronavirus messaging, um, which you know inevitably will take precedence uh, in some situations, is um, really quite difficult. So I think you know, it has been a challenge for the government. It's one that you know, they are starting to think about Brexit again. They're starting to up their game, but it's undoubtedly cost us a few months of preparations.
0: Thanks, Joe. And. As you were saying, coronavirus has sort of knocked Brexit off the front pages. But I think the other thing that's that's done that is really that since we've had the general election, we haven't had the political drama in Parliament that we saw, obviously, in the, in the previous phases of the Brexit process. We haven't had the late night meaningful votes, the backbench bills, the sort of procedural gymnastics facilitated by the former Speaker. It all feels a bit of a long time ago. Maddie, you were our sort of Supremo, following the twists and turns of everything that went on in Parliament last year, do you miss it a bit?
2: I mean it really does feel like another world doesn 't it i think I think probably not necessarily the late nights um, and I think for for most people, I think across the country, not just those of us sort of following the Westminster drama closely, I think the sort of endless indecision in Parliament did get pretty tiring so I think that you know I think probably a lot of people were quite relieved when finally we knew we knew where we were going um, at the end of the year but yeah as you say I mean it's interesting actually just sort of almost slightly beyond Brexit but it's interesting to see how with such a big majority you're not looking at close votes in the same way but we have for example seen some Tory rebellions I think in particular an amendment to the agriculture bill which sort of look to try and protect the sort of high food standards in the UK um, after the end of the year, sort of from, from trade deals. You know, there, I think there was about 20, 25 Conservative MPs rebelled on that. So it is quite interesting that there is still backbenchers in the Conservative Party are definitely making their voices heard. And yeah, as I say, sort of beyond Brexit, we've seen obviously a lot of discussion of U-turns, and a lot of that is coming from the backbenches. So I'm I'm sure number 10 is very aware of that. And I sort of wouldn't rule out that pressure on Brexit as well.
0: Because there are still bills to go through, aren't there? Um, are there any where you think there are going to be sort of sticking points in potential rebellions?
2: I think that in terms of the sort of Brexit bills, so we're thinking agriculture, environment, fisheries, immigration, yes, they're still they're still going through. And actually, there's still a bit of way to go. We've got a second reading in the comments of a couple of those li- Bills next week um, that have already passed through the Lords. I think that we're sort of unlikely to see big rebellions on that. I mean, again, there was there was an amendment to the Trade Bill that tried to give Parliament a stronger role over trade in trade negotiations, but that that failed as well. So I don't think we're necessarily going to see sort of rebellions as such there. I think the legislation will largely go through. I mean, there's a big question about whether they're going to get the Environment Bill through in time, for example. That has been delayed for quite a long time, and it's it's responsible for setting up something that the government's calling the Office for environmental protection to try and sort of basically fulfill the role of, or some of the role of EU institutions in protecting environmental standards after we leave. I think the, the big sort of bun fight this autumn is really going to be over a new bill that the government announced sort of quite unceremoniously about a month ago, um, which is called sort of the Internal Market Bill. And this is something that I guess we haven't necessarily within our, our uh, the IFG's bill tracker. It doesn't feature on there um, because it's really looking at life beyond Brexit. But but it's all about trying to ensure that. To sort of protect, in the government's words, um, the the UK internal market once we've left the EU single market after we leave, and so it's about trying to ensure there's going to be access for businesses across the UK, so within Scotland, Wales, um, and England. There's a big question about how Northern Ireland fits into that. We haven't discussed the Northern Ireland Protocol today, but that's obviously one of the big challenges, um, and that that means that you know Ireland, Northern Ireland, will continue to align with EU rules and good, um, yeah, rules and goods, for example, f- from the end of the year.
0: And how do you think the devolved administrations will uh, feel about this internal market bill?
2: Well, we know how they feel about it. They're they're absolutely livid, to be honest. Um, I think that's probably putting it mildly. Um, I think we've we've seen the phrase "power grab" again. I mean, it's it's become a phrase we've heard a lot in Brexit. But essentially, what what the bill, this internal market bill, will do is it will say they're saying they're not going to change the devolved powers or impact the devolved powers to legislate in devolved areas. But what it will mean is that if if I don't know, they're the the UK government negotiates something with the US, and they allow allow chlorinated chicken, for example, in into the UK. Scotland and Wales will not be able to prevent that being sold into their own markets, even if they do not sign up to the, to the principle of allowing sort of goods with lower standards in, into the UK, um, sort of or into Scottish and Welsh markets. So. The big problem is that essentially what it will allow is a bit of a race to the bottom where England can, will be able to set lower standards if they want. The UK government acting for England, and although the Welsh and Scots might want to have higher standards, they'll still have to let those goods into their own markets, and that's one of the big problems. And, and I think that the problem is, is that the government has published this white paper very, as I say, sort of without much notice at all, um, not much time for consultation with businesses or, or others. Um, and that they want to try and pass this legislation by the end of the year, and as I say, it will be constitutional will have a massive impact. I don't think they've really thought through what it means economically either. A lot of the business groups I've spoken to are also slightly confused about it and not entirely sure what the government's planning. There's not much detail. Hopefully we'll find out more next month. But yes, I think this is definitely not going to be the last time we discuss the internal market on this podcast.
0: So still plenty of uh, legislation, fun and games to be had. Just in terms, <laughs> of, in terms of the politics, Labour hasn't really said anything about Brexit since Keir Starmer became leader. Do you think that's going to change, Maddie?
2: I think. Probably not really, or at least not not yet. I think that from it's sort of been quite interesting to watch the sort of the deadline for extending the transition period. We talked about that earlier. Georgie talked about that. We, we saw the deadline for extending the transition period sort of come and go with very little fanfare, even from business groups. You know, no one publicly was saying, "Hold on a second, there's really not much time left. You haven't got very far with the negotiations. We don't really know what we're preparing for. Shouldn't we just look for a little bit more time?" And I think that. Following last year, you know, Labour was quite burned by the whole Brexit sort of process and their their position on Brexit. And I think for the moment, Labour just don't really want to get involved. What will be interesting is if um, there's sort of more opposition from the Conservative backbenchers on whatever deal that may may be brought back from Brussels if we do get a deal, and whether whether that will mean that Labour has to sort of make a bit more of a decision about what their view actually is on the deal. Um, I mean, whatever happens, even if they don't want to sort of have their hands on on Brexit at the moment, they are going to have to set out a bit of a vision about how they see the UK's place in the world and and how they see the UK's relationship with the EU unfolding going forward. But for the moment, I think they're just going to sit back and and sort of let let Brexit happen and sort of let Boris Johnson's hands be all over it.
3: Picking up the uh, points that Maddie was making about the scrutiny of legislation, I think it's really uh, interesting to note that, you know, there is this question, I suppose, uh, if there's a bit of Brexit fatigue on some of these bills in Parliament in the sense that some of these bills are now on effectively their third sort of stab over the line. Um, Many were introduced under Theresa May. Uh, They then fell when uh, Parliament was prorogued last year. We then reintroduced by the new government, sometimes with a few tweaks uh, at the start of this year, And then they were paused and delayed by the coronavirus crisis. And now they're having to sort of try and get them over a line once again. And I think there is a question there about, you know, some of these bills do quite big things, uh, lots of issues have been raised by parliamentarians over time about them. But I do wonder, you know, with time tight, uh, with lots of other things on the agenda, and as Maddie was saying, with the internal markets bill likely to take a lot for fire, whether or not they will get sort of the intensive scrutiny uh, that they probably deserve, but people are probably slightly over at the moment.
0: I guess the other point is that you have a lot of new MPs who came in at the last election who possibly aren't aware of all that scrutiny that's happened in the past so they might not be quite so well equipped to pick up on some of those issues which uh, have been raised by the uh, colleagues.
3: Exactly, I think that's a really good point. You know, they just you know aren't aware of those issues. Also, just you know, scrutinising legislation is a skill that you develop over time, uh, particularly in committees, and um, you know it's something that you. Know, MPs have not had much opportunity to do because legislation has been stored because of the coronavirus. And I think as well, you know, uh, committees looking at legislation, the select committees, the makeup of those has changed as well. So we've got a slightly different dynamic and political dynamic, which will also impact how, um, how Parliament scrutinises this legislation going forward.
0: And Georgie, you mentioned earlier the European Parliament, of course, still has is going to have to sign off on a deal. Where do you think the the European Parliament is on the sort of deal which looks like it's coming down the track and and is the signing off of that deal likely to be straightforward?
1: They're not very happy is what you the, the sense that you get listening to them. Um they've obviously quite got quite a formidable head of, of sort of the UK EU grouping, David McAllister, who we've actually interviewed um on a podcast for IFG recently. Um and you know he was very clear. He said we were uh, rushed into agreeing to the withdrawal agreement this will not happen this time around this Deal, however basic it is, will have huge implications for the way that the UK and the EU trade and cooperate in all sorts of areas. We, as the European Parliament, need time to really, you know, look into this deal, to scrutinise it, to debate it, because, of course, they have their own constituents that they stand up for. So, um, in that sense, they will want airtime. Now, are they realistically going to vote it down if all the member states agree to the deal? I doubt it. Um, But I think this is sort of more in the context of the EU and where it is going over the past couple of years. There have been real questions about sort of the the legitimacy question uh, and particularly the democratic deficit question, i.e., you know, all these decisions are happening in Brussels. Governments approve them, but we don't really know uh, whether, you know, how we citizens have an impact? Well, of course, the European Parliament is the only directly elected European institution, so they will want to make sure that they're not setting a precedent here where they're approving trade deals um, and not having that time to really look at them. And
0: that brings us to the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Muddy Tumont, jack to Georgina Wright and to Joe Marshall, and a big thank you to all of you listening at home. If you want to hear more IFG work and discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen to Apple Podcasts, ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do please leave us a review. So remember, everyone, check, change, and go, whatever that means. We hope to see you next week.